The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Star Traders go after Black Friday bargains on a sentient planet and end up paying a pity for the thoughts of an entire continental archipelago. Weighted blankets trap colonists in bed for five days on centripetally spinning space station wheel until the place is spun backward for cleaning. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with DJ Butler this time talking about Serpent Daughter, his new book in the Witchy Wars series. This is Dave Butler's cool alternate 1830s and 1840s America, where magic works and the continent is divided up into kingdoms. There's an emperor in the East allied with the necromancer Oliver Cromwell, and our heroine Sarah is now queen sitting upon the serpent throne in the kingdom of Cahokia, where there's lots of magic and elf-like beings and strange man-beasts around as well. And the emperor wants to conquer Cahokia, as do the animal god people of uh, the West, the Heron King and his folk. So it's all really evocative, adventurous, fun stuff from Dave Butler, and Dave will tell us all about it. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. The November Bain eBooks Leap into Leaden sale continues until Monday night. Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's wonderful Leaden Universe series is on sale in ebook form. $2 off on Accepting the Lance, which is regularly $6.99 and it's now $4.99 until Monday. Plus $1 off on all Bain Leaden Universe series ebooks. Available wherever Bain ebooks are sold, so get these bargains while you can. And speaking of Leaden, our November free fiction at the Bain.com website is preferred seating by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. A port in the storm. Pilot Can Ith Yosphelium liked his life as a scout, so when he receives unwelcome news of a promotion that will prevent him from continuing his vocation, he's far from pleased. In port, he seeks out time alone to drink and think up a plan, but his path is about to cross with a mysterious woman who seems to know a lot about him, and she has a plan all her own to bring Leaden back from the brink of ruin. Preferred seating by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller is set directly in the world of Sharon and Steve's upcoming new Leaden novel, Trader's Leap, which will be available December 1st. That's next Tuesday, so get a free taste of that. And if you are coming to this later, you can find that story in the Free Stories 2020 ebook download, which you can get at Bain.com. Build up your Malanti by reading some great Leaden stories and check those out. This is part one of a two-part interview with DJ Butler, author of Serpent Daughter. Part two will be available on next week's podcast.
Hey, I want to welcome DJ Butler, Dave Butler, back to the podcast. Hey, Dave. Hey, Tony. Good to see you. That is some hat. Um, it is not the tricorder. Uh, tri- no. Or or the fedora that I started wearing for Hiram Woolley either. But I was wearing this back when Witchy Eye came out. I don't have a people uh. crowned kind of Grand Inquisitor hat. I haven't got one. This is the closest I've got. It's actually. Uh, is leather and I bought it on a business trip to Buenos Aires back in about um, 2004 I guess and just sat around the house for for 14 years and then uh, and then when I started wearing hats as kind of a you know branding authorly shtick I said you know what I should wear that hat so huh so it pretty I mean it looks kind of Jim Butchery like uh, his main character is a bit and his hat, although I think in the book, you say Jim Butchery, but I think you're really talking about the iconic covers, right? Because I think in the books, the character isn't actually described as wearing a hat. Yes, in the in the covers, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah and it's got a uh, the sort of the sort of link to witchy eye, if there is one, is it's got a little fleur-de-lis on there. Fleur-de-lis. Uh, maybe that's the Chevalier's hat. That's right, uh, one of the bad guys. One of the of. bad guys. Well, let's talk about, all right, let me tell you, talk a little bit about Dave. Uh, DJ Butler grew up in swamps, deserts, and mountains. After messing around for years with the practice of law, he finally got serious and turned his lifelong passion of storytelling. He now writes adventure stories for readers of all ages, plays guitar, and spends as much time as he can with his family, which is a lot more this year uh, (laughs) due to circumstances beyond our control correct um he is the author of witchy eye witchy winter witchy kingdom uh which is the first three books in the witchy wars series as well as co-author of dust bowl magic mystery novels which is just what i decided to call them this time um the cutting man and and uh the jupiter knife i don't know what exactly how you would characterize those books but they're really cool that's a good characterization. I I, um, I think technically the genre is occult detective, but that's a little bit of a smallish genre for most people. So I sometimes say they're the, that uh, in the same way that Witchy Eye is the epic fantasy of the old weird America, that uh, the Cunning Man is the urban fantasy of the old weird America. Well, that makes sense. Well, now out at Booksellers Everywhere is uh, the epic fantasy of arcane america um serpent daughter by dj butler and this is um is set in the witchy world series uh universe and uh, it's sort of a, a, a new beginning of a sub it's the continuation of the old story really though um from from the original books but we're concentrating more on the fact that sarah is now queen of of cahokia and she's got to deal with um a lot of stuff going on. So, uh, your your subtitle is um, "The Witchy Queen Rides to Battle." Maybe um, that's a good work place to start. Maybe tell us where we are as at the novel start, who the players are in this amazing milieu that you've created. So, uh, at the start, um, and this is this is meant to be. You're right; it is a continuation. I, I think it is readable if you saw it in a bookstore and said, you know, I'm, I, I, can I pick that up and start reading there? I, hopefully the answer is yes. Oh, yeah, um, I think definitely, yeah. Yeah. 
but it is meant to be a continuation, uh, the second trilogy, and it follows pretty closely on. About a month has passed. So it's a spring, late spring, uh, summer of, of uh, 1816 in this fantasy America. Uh, Sarah is queen of Cahokia in ways that her father was never able to accomplish. Uh, and, uh, and she is also dying. Uh, she's dying because she has exhausted herself from the various arcane feats uh, that, that got her to the throne. Um, and she's also under assault uh, from, uh, uh, from, from Simon Sword, uh, from the Heron King, who remains her sort of great nemesis. Uh, and, um, but she is now one of the seven kings of the Ohio. And uh, the, the other kings of the Ohio, uh, uh, so at least one of them, wants to come to her aid. Her, her neighbor, the king of Tawa, is a great healer. Uh, and there is, a, there is an, an ancient rite of kingship that can heal uh, Sarah, um, or, or rather it, that will help her to transcend her body. Um, uh, but, it, but it requires the uh, participation of the, of the seven kings. So to uh, try to save Sarah, to try to, to, to uh, and therefore, you know, maintain everything that depends on her. Uh, the, the kings, uh, or her, her allies set about gathering the seven kings. And the kings are, are an important part of the story, but they're NPCs, if you will, they're non-point of view characters. Well, so, this is, I mean, I, so I guess we could, it's hard to, find a, the, the milieu is so, uh, so large. <laughs> All right. So Sarah, why is she, why is she going down and why does she need saving? Who is she opposed to? Um, why do we, uh, what's going to happen to everything if she does go down? Um, who are these, these bad guys that are lurking, uh, Thomas Penn and, uh, and Simon, Simon sword. Um, yeah. So everything, in other words. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, let's let's <laughs> paint a so, a that's that's short a picture as possible to give the idea of the. Yeah, assuming assuming the the listener has not started reading the books yet. So so this is set in a kind of America. It's an 1815 epic fantasy America. The the word America. There are a few words actually that I'm very careful in editing to try to make sure they're not in the book at all. So the name America has never appeared. Uh, also, the word human. Uh, here, so um, but it's a it's an 1815 kind of a, uh, kind of America in which the uh, the political powers organized as an elective empire, and so uh, one of the bad guys is uh, uh, is Thomas Penn, who is the Penn landholder and the elected uh, emperor of the empire uh, of the New World east of the Mississippi. Um, he, uh, he, is a, he is a bad guy. Uh, he wants to accomplish great things. He wants to be a great man. He wants to, to, to uh, be uh, a benefactor. Um, but he came to his throne by murdering his sister after imprisoning her as a madwoman for 15 years. Uh, and he is deeply under the influence of the necromancer Oliver Cromwell, uh, who came to uh, the New World as a kind of a parasite hiding inside William Penn and his descended, uh, has come down through Penn's descendants uh, as this sort of uh, tutelary divinity specter ghost uh, being. 
So Sarah is actually Thomas's nephew. Sarah is the is one of three children. So the woman that Thomas killed is Sarah's mother, right? Correct. She's one Who of is the Margaret. No, Margaret's not. Uh, uh, Hannah. Hannah. Hannah yeah. Penn. Mad Hannah Penn had uh, had three children, uh, uh, conceived of uh, acorns anointed with blood after her husband had been uh, struck down by and, and murdered by traitors. Uh, those three children, uh, one of them—that's a good way to freeze your sperm (laughs) (laughs) or your genetic. uh, Very early. Her uh, husband was like an elf, though, right? I mean, he's a firstborn, not an elf. Yeah, that's that's a that's a that's a a nice conventional fantasy door to come at it through, though. Is think about these as humans and elves. I I don't use the word human. I talk about the firstborn and the children of Eve, Um, and and they humans being the children of Eve. Yes. Yeah. And firstborn being elves, um, not always immediately identifiable as such. They they look like they don't have pointy ears. They're not eight feet tall, but they do have a, a slightly distinctive coloring and and uh, and uh, a greater gift for magic. And they are uh, allergic to silver. They they respond to the physical touch of silver. So those things you you, you can ultimately tell them from uh, the children of Eve from humans. So and and Sarah's mother uh, was was the pen land holder and uh, Mad Hannah. She wasn't mad at the time, uh, and her father was one of the firstborn, uh, the king of, of Cahokia. Uh, and uh, her father was murdered by traitors, but then uh, anointed with his dying blood three acorns. Um, Hannah, when she ate them, conceived and bore three secret children who were hidden. Uh, Thomas then, to take Hannah's power, accused her of madness, uh, had her uh, locked up, uh, and then 15 years later uh, discovered that, uh, that, that these children had been born. Because all these kids. And, yeah. and um, our heroine, um, who Sarah, she didn't even know who she was until Witchy Eye. That, I mean, Witchy Eye is her coming of age story, right? Of her coming into awareness of who she is. That's right. Uh, it's, it's in some ways an extremely conventional kind of plot, right? It's, it's about, a, she's, she's raised as, um, as a foster child, not knowing it. She's raised uh, outside of Nashville in the hills by uh, war hero and elector Iron Andy Calhoun. Um, and uh, uh, and, and uh, one day Imperial Army officers try to kidnap her. And it's because Thomas, has just tortured his sister to death and 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 discovered the whereabouts of Sarah. Where Sarah is, uh, and she's got this one eye that's that can do magic and see certain things and can see yeah. magic, right? That's, yeah, although it can't initially. Right? When the story opens, the first paragraph is actually describing her eye, uh, which has not ever opened. It is, uh, you know, weeping, sore, uh, swollen. And, uh, and uh, she's, uh, so, so I love the Dan Dos Santos covers. The, the one thing that is really not right about the Dos Santos covers is she is always good looking on them. There is not an attractive woman. No one in the, in the books has ever says, oh, you're beautiful. That's not, you know, she's not secretly beautiful and men have to just discover it. No, she is homely. Um, well, I mean, she's going to have to be if Emma Watson is going to play her, but anyway. But, uh, <laughs> But she's also very smart uh, and fiercely loyal. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and when, the, when the emperor's servants come to kidnap her, um, old allies of her parents uh, intervene, in particular her, her father's uh, uh, confessor priest, 
uh, comes to, to intervene and, and whisks her off just before the Imperials can get to her. Uh, and so Sarah sets out on her quest to uh, recover their siblings she learns she never knew she, she had. And she wants to save and protect them. She's got a very strong family instinct. Um, but also she's got a, a father's stolen kingdom and she's got uh, her mother's stolen uh, wealth. Uh, and so, uh, and her uh, uncle Thomas and the, the necromancer Cromwell are, are uh, want her dead because she's a threat to Thomas's wealth uh, and power. And Cromwell's um, ultimate desire to—he's yeah. <laughs> got a little plan going on himself. To... So, so that's interesting. So, both of these guys have uh, um, Cromwell and Thomas both are, are villains who see themselves as great benefactors. And Cromwell, in particular, wants to complete what he sees as the flawed work of the Creator and end death. Um, so, uh, yeah. So that now, those guys, in a sense, are, or in some senses, are the smaller bad guy though uh because because right. to the west is a god <laughs> is, is, a, is a god who has entered his berserk phase um so so at this point at the point of serpent daughter she is queen of cahokia cahokia right. is is where cahokia the indian mound place is Same today in real life but is is this magical center of the seven kingdoms they're along the Ohio River or yeah. the Ohio Valley. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, so, and they are not subject to Thomas yet, and he wants them. They, they are part of the empire. Or, they are of, part of the empire. Okay. Yeah. Some, although subject to is interesting, right? It's, it, is a, it is a kind of a federal empire. They're, they're sovereign kingdoms. Um, but they are um, they're uneasily within the empire for a few reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is that um, that that some of them uh, forsook their ancestral goddess to join the empire, right? So in in previous, really before Sarah's time, before Sarah's father's time, there was a revolt against the goddess and and a re envisioning her as a as a as a demon and moving some towards something that is more like a um, uh, a sort of spare uh, a Christian, uh, like a Protestant uh, new, new light kind of religion, uh, to to fit better within the empire, uh, and so there's some there's some tension within the within the kingdoms about uh, over that struggle, which is not entirely finished. Uh, there's also some tension because. Uh, part of Thomas's ideology is uh, is Martinite. It's aligned with the uh, followers of Saint Martin Luther, who uh, whose whose great dogma is that the firstborn should hold no political power uh, over uh, the children of Eve, uh, in accordance with uh, the Book of Genesis, which says that man was given dominion. Right. So, uh, so he's been, from the beginning of book one, he's been suppressing the kingdoms of the Ohio under what's called the pacification, false pretexts, um, lies about rebellion, uh, plus actual incidents uh, of, of uh, strife or use to, to create the pretext for Thomas having troops there and locking down the markets and controlling the highways. Um, so, uh, so yes, yeah, so Sarah, Sarah becomes in the first, this is a spoiler, in the first three books, and really in book three in particular, Sarah becomes the queen of Cahokia. 
and and reconnect with her father's goddess. But but the other the other great antagonist on the uh, I'm doing this to mean the West. I'm imagining a map in front of me. Oh, well, you're in Utah, so that's the West to you. <laughs> I would do it on the other side myself. All east of me. <laughs> everything everything in his book is out east. Um, so, uh, is, um, the, the, the great God of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. Um, one of the things, one of the pieces that, that went into the stew here from the beginning, I think it might've been a national geographic article before they got like a hundred percent political talking about the, the basically Eastern half of North America, right? Well, so, you know, some of it drains North into the Hudson. But then, you know, south of the Great Lakes, there's just, just vast drainage basins, really just one river. The Mississippi and the Ohio rivers is, is one uh, gigantic river system. Uh, and, and you can map it, and, and it, it's, it's striking to see just all the tributaries, everything between, like, you know, the Appalachies and, and, uh, and the Rockies just all flows down into one river and out, out past New Orleans. And... Um, and so, and so, uh, the Heron King is the god of this river system. He's the, he's his incarnation. And uh, you know, the thing about rivers is, uh, like the Nile, right, or like the the Indus or whatever. They the, a big river gives life. Uh, it's the river that that fertilizes the flatland, uh, and and makes these places uh, bread. You know, the Egypt was the breadbasket of Rome. Uh, and, and it's what, you know, the Mississippi is what makes the American bottomland so fertile. Uh, but rivers are also immensely destructive. And, uh, and, and a flood will wipe out, you know, a, a city w without, a, without, a, a, without a thought, you know. And, um, and so, I, so the, the god of the Mississippi and the Ohio rivers, uh, the Heron King, has this kind of dual aspect. And... Uh, uh, people speak different idioms in the book, but many of them use a heavily biblical idiom, uh, which I think is true to is true to America and American culture. I think I think to sort of read American history, you, you have to realize that many people have come here uh, seeing themselves as as being part of the biblical epic and still speaking that language. That's fading over time, but I think it was certainly true in 1815. So, uh, so in the kind of a pseudo-biblical idiom, his, the names of his two aspects are Peter Plowshare, which is a beneficent, uh, gift-giving, long-reigning, peaceful monarch uh, who is, uh, uh, for example, some of his deeds include that in this setting, uh, when, when uh, European immigrants started arriving, it was the uh, the uh, the arts of Peter Plowshare that stopped the the residents who were who were living here at the time from dying of diseases on contact. Uh, and for example, it was, he's he's reputed to be the one who taught the so-called three sisters agriculture, the squash uh, and bean and gourd uh, uh, or, or corn, sorry, um, uh, triple planting. So, um, so, and, and so one of the things that happens in book one is there are strange emissaries who are repeating this phrase, Peter Plowshare is dead, which the, which the empire has mostly forgotten how to understand. Uh, and so, and so they're not ready because what that means is that, uh, that the new king is Simon Sword. 
and Simon Sword is the destructive face of the river. Uh, and he doesn't, he's, he is there to bring change uh, and, and, and judgment in the sense of change and destruction to uh, everybody without, uh, without discrimination. And it's kind of like your, your God, your beneficent God got a brain tumor and yeah. suddenly became a different person. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, well, and it's like, it's like, uh, it's like Horus and Osiris, right? Horus and Osiris are, are the same God, but, but they're, they're a father son chain that never ends. And Horus is the living son and Osiris is the dead father. So, so what does Simon sort of look like? He, he's, He's a giant, and he's covered with iridescent feathers, and he has the head of a heron, uh, and um, and he's extremely bloodthirsty, and he is a powerful magician, uh, and uh, and he's and he's driven. Um, you know, gods aren't rational creatures; they are driven by their nature to do the thing that that is them, and he is driven by his nature uh, to uh, to destroy. Um, and his and his capital is right next to Sarah's, um, and uh, and and there are uh, there are indications, uh, including from Simon Sword himself, that there is an old covenant between Sarah's goddess and between uh, between the Heron King. So so Simon Sword proposes marriage to her, in Book One, uh, which she which she declines. There's a, there's a conversation near the end of Serpent Daughter about whether or not maybe she should have accepted uh, that, uh, uh, that proposal. Well, so, if they have a, I mean, the, the prophecy is, right, that if they have a kid that Peter Plowshare will come back and that, yeah. that kid will be Peter Plowshare, but that means that she has to marry this, this murdering maniac, which she doesn't and want to <laughs> Understandably does not want to. And we've, and we've seen the result for the mother of a child he has already had. Uh, which was, In the book, we have this kid, Absalom, who is um, one of the, uh, the, who's a sort of an illegitimate progeny of, of Simon Sword. And, and this storyline is, is fun in the book because I like it uh, because this thing is, is, it's like the exorcist sort of. It's yeah. like, for, yes, uh, he's born and begins. He he erupts out of his mother's belly, uh, killing her, and begins to eat her flesh. Within few days, he's speaking whole sentences uh, and denying. Uh, uh, he's he's uh, uh, so we're we're like working back into book three here. He's in the the custody, if you will. Uh, of a group of reformed beastmen uh, who call themselves the Merciful, who are trying to uh, to adopt mercy as the, as their as their behavior and their ideology rather than their animal instincts. And um, the beastmen are they work for Simon? Yeah, they're they're basically part of his kingdom. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them are are feral and really wild, and some of them are more civilized. We see we see both of those from fairly early on. Uh, and so these guys, the merciful, are, are trying to, uh, and it's sort of a physical, an exteriorization of, the, of their inner drama, right? I mean, they're, try, they're trying to uh, be, be new people, be merciful, and he is, he is the one who is like them uh, and who utterly will not be redeemed. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, so there's, so, so yes, uh, 
uh, the only way that Simon's sword can be defeated is that he has to have a son, but he has to have a son within this ancient covenant with the goddess of Cahokia, which means Sarah. Uh, and um, so, uh, so Sarah's dying, and this is a threat because maybe the empire will be able to full come back in. She's driven them out of her kingdom, but not out of the valley, um, not out of the, of the Ohio. You know, uh, so there's a question, hey, can, can the pacification be entirely lifted? Or if Sarah's defeated, do we go right back to being ground under the heel of Thomas Penn? Uh, and, and, and do we then get destroyed uh, by this monster rampaging um, uh, on the river? Um, so the stakes are high for everyone. There's a, there's a third enemy um, down in New Orleans. Yeah. Which is a problem as well that's part of this story yeah that's right there's a whole there's a whole conflict that's going on um and and these conflicts are are they have touch points they're woven together but there's a there's a uh there's a, there's a whole separate conflict in new orleans uh around the the chevalier who the chevalier the uh, one of the two electors of new orleans uh or of louisiana um who's the nobleman who is its secular ruler and uh, he, in book one, uh, murders the bishop. He has the bishop killed. Uh, the bishop has been a thorn in his side. Historically, uh, the, uh, the bishop, Rick, had been basically under his control and his cousins, the other, the other branch of the Lemoyne de Bienville family had been the bishops. Uh, and so uh, this bishop, uh, who is the most unambiguously righteous character in all of the books so far, uh, had, had been appointed uh, really to aggravate the Chevalier and, and reduce his political power. Um, and, uh, and when the bishop denounced the Chevalier uh, for, uh, for murder, the, the, the Chevalier went ahead and killed him too. Uh, in, uh, in, in, in the cathedral as he's, as he's, uh, you know, performing mass. So, um, so that doesn't end the conflict because, uh, because the bishop before his death, when he first confronts the chevalier, uh, curses him, uh, shakes the dust off his, his, uh, sandal and, and says, you know, uh, he says, uh, you're going to be struck down and if you, if you do anything to me, my successor will be, will be much worse uh, than anything I can do to you. And, uh, you know, like Ben Kenobi, or like, uh, yeah, so, uh, so, uh, so the successor, the, that bishop has two sons. Uh, it's the good son and the bad son. Uh, and, uh, and, and people in book one, as we see this family, uh, sort of expect conventionally the good son to, potentially be the next bishop he's you know he's scholarly and he's and he's he's uh he's humble and helpful and uh and in book two he does not become the next bishop instead the bad son uh succeeds and and the bad son does this he actually uh seeks it out uh and and um and acquires the biblical seat uh basically by bribery uh and uh he is a gangster and he is a uh, voodoo hungan. He's a voodoo priest, and uh, and he is acting at the direction of his his dead mother, his Gede Loa, his his guardian spirit. This is his dead mother, who was a a voodoo uh, mambo, 
and uh, and and becomes bishop to seek revenge against the chevalier. So one of the ongoing stories is is that conflict continues, um, and then again sort of interacts with uh, with with Sarah's story at, at the end of book three. There's a there's a moment where the bad son, the the bishop of New Orleans, uh, who is also a gambler and sorcerer, Etienne, is key to Sarah accomplishing what she wants uh, in Cahokia. Uh, she 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 needs a priest, and she reaches. She's he's the one she she can think of, and she reaches out to him. That was part one of a two-part interview with DJ Butler talking about Serpent Daughter. Part two will be available next week on the podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Industrial Annex Number 6 Beowulf Alpha, Beowulf System. Hamish Alexander Harrington's Unilink pinged, and he paused, raising one hand at Jacques Benton Ramirez Ichu. The two of them, Tobias Stimson, Samantha, and Bark Chewer's Bane, had docked with Beowulf Alpha barely five minutes ago. Benton Ramirez Ichu had locked up his ship, and they'd headed for the nearest slidewalk. From every indication, the Beowulfers' estimate of how long it would take them to get anywhere had been grossly optimistic, the Earl reflected. At the moment, they were between slidewalks, passing through an enormous waste recycling plant with Stimson in the lead. Whitehaven, he said, acknowledging the calm request. Tom Caparelli, Hamish. The voice which replied carried a harsh undertone of tension, and Whitehaven's eyebrows rose as he turned to look at Benton Ramirez Ichu. What is it, Tom? The bastards just killed Mycroft, Caparelli said flatly. What? Happened about four minutes ago. Caparelli sounded as grim as Whitehaven had ever heard him. Don't have any details yet. According to Corey McAvoy, though, the control platforms may have been taken out, may have been taken out by grazer fire. That remind you of anybody? Mesa, Whitehaven hissed, remembering the horrific damage the grazer torpedoes had inflicted during the Yawada strike. But then he frowned. If they could get some kind of silver dart into the system, and it was capable of not just taking out the Mycroft platforms, but finding them in the first place, then why the hell didn't they just go ahead and use them to take out whatever the hell these people are here to attack? There's some reason you think I've suddenly become a mind reader? 
Caporelli shot back. How do I know why the hell these people do anything? Misdirection, Benton Ramirez, he chew put in. Whitehaven looked at him, and he shrugged with some difficulty. He was a much smaller man than Whitehaven. That made it awkward for Bark Chewer's Bane to ride his shoulder the way Samantha rode Whitehaven's or Nimitz rode Honor's, so he usually carried the cat the way he might have carried a human infant instead. Today, though, he needed both hands to manipulate hatch controls and for handholds when they crossed through zero-gravity sections. That's the name of the game for these bastards, he expanded now. Well, maybe the word I really want is deniability. It's the same thing, really, though. They aren't attacking Beowulf directly. They're only enabling the Sully attack. I wouldn't be surprised if nobody in the SLN knew they were going to either. This way, whatever happens to us will be the Sully's fault. And even if we figure out someone else plowed the road, the rest of the galaxy will think we're only seeing alignment boogeymen under our beds all over again. I think you're onto something, Whitehaven said after a moment's thought, reaching up to caress Samantha as she leaned into the side of his neck. But I can't help wondering if there's something more to it as well. What kind of something more? Caparelli asked from his Unilink. If I knew that, I wouldn't be wondering about it. Whitehaven shook his head. No, I don't know what it is, but we're missing something here. He frowned some more, then his eyes narrowed suddenly. Samantha twitched on his shoulder, ears flattening, and he cocked his head at Benton Ramirez Ichu. Tell me, Jacques, he said. If you were the Sollies, and you figured you might get one shot at attacking Beowulf, getting in clean at least, whatever happened to you on your withdrawal, would you go for Cassandra? That's where the shipyards and the industries supporting the reconstruction work in Manticore are located, Benton Ramirez Ichu replied slowly. But if you were going to get only one shot at the apple, would you use it going after the yards, or would you use it going after the one thing Bolthole can't produce? I don't like where you're going with this, Hamish, Caparelli said. I don't much like it either. Whitehaven stood motionless, only the fingers of his raised hand moving as they stroked Samantha. Then he inhaled and shook himself. I don't like it either, and I'm probably being paranoid, he said. A lot would depend on what they knew or suspected about our production capabilities. We haven't exactly taken out any ads on the public boards in old Chicago about them, but we also don't know what their people, the Solis people or the Alignments people, might have picked up here in Beowulf before the referendum vote. So it's possible. The question would be why they're so busy heading for Cassandra, if that's the case. You're right. Caporelli sounded as thoughtful as Whitehaven. But what if, his voice had sharpened, the Sollies don't know about the missile lines, but the alignment does. What if there are more of those grazer torpedoes, or something like them, in system, waiting to hit us in coordination with the Sollies' attack on Cassandra? Could be, Whitehaven nodded. Coordinating it would be a bitch, but they obviously managed to coordinate the strike on Mycroft, didn't they? Could have been just as simple as waiting until their strike platforms detected a hyperfootprint on the right bearing, Caporelli pointed out. For that matter, they could have one of their people aboard any one of those battlecruisers in a position to transmit an execution code, in which case... In which case, another transmission code could be headed our way right now, Hamish finished for him. 
Exactly. Find Gabriel. Tell him about this. Whitehaven shook his head, his face like stone. I hope to hell I'm wrong, but if I'm not, we may be running out of time fast. System Defense HQ. City of Columbia, Beowulf. Beowulf System. I hate to say it, sir, but Earl Whitehaven may have a point. Corey McAvoy's brown eyes were dark, his lips tight. We're still reprogramming the Apollo pods. It's taking a lot longer without Mycroft, and they're not going to be as accurate, but we should be ready to launch within the next six minutes, and we've got a lot of them. That's not going to help us if the bastards have snuck something into the inner system, though. Agreed. Cadell Markham's expression was as unhappy as McAvoy's. Still, they'd have been taking an awful risk trying to sneak something too deep inside the hyperlimit. I'm not saying they wouldn't have tried, and I'm not saying they couldn't have done it, but I think our chance of catching them at it would have been a hell of a lot higher. Which probably means anything coming at us will be coming from outside Beowulf's orbit. McAvoy nodded. I'd give a couple of million credits to be sure of that, but I think we have to go on that assumption. At least the inner system block ships impellers are hot under code red, and Cheryl's already positioned them on the threat axis. She's fine adjusting their alignment now. I only wish I had more of them. And that we weren't going to lose so many to the bastards' initial launch, assuming they launch against the inner system at all. Cadell Markham agreed grimly. If the clever buggers have set something up as a follow-on strike. The best we can do is the best we can do, sir. And with your permission, I'll go see about doing it. Planetary Director's Office. City of Columbia, Beowulf. Should we try to evacuate, Gabe? Planetary Director Benton Ramirez asked, his expression agonized. No real point, Chang, Cadell Markham replied from his comm screen. They haven't launched yet, even assuming Hamish isn't just being constructively paranoid, and the real threat is to the inner system instead of Cassandra. And if they do launch now, there wouldn't be enough time to evacuate enough people to make any real difference. All we'd do would be to create a panic and probably get quite a few people trampled to death, even if there isn't a real threat. The defense director shrugged. Neither of them commented on the fact that the conference attendees on Beowulf Alpha with him were at the very heart of that massive platform. Anything capable of housing that many million people was enormous, and it had been built in layers like a vast onion. Despite the best planning possible, that put kinks into its internal transit systems, where lift tubes were truncated at transfer stations. Normally, those kinks were little more than excuses for irritated profanity as traffic stacked up during rush hours, but they could have more serious repercussions. It would have required at least 45 minutes for anyone in the George Benton Center just to reach the station's outer hab zones, for example. Nor was it remotely practical to build emergency escape pods that could reach that deep. The necessary access trunking made it simply impossible. Of course, prior to Hypatia, no one would have expected them to be necessary, even if they'd been practical. The sort of accident that could take out something Beowulf Alpha size was about as likely as the unannounced arrival of a dinosaur killer. And until the Iwata strike and Hypatia, the Eridani edict had meant no one had worried about sneak attacks on civilian targets like it. I don't like it. And frankly, I think Hamish probably is being a bit overly paranoid, Cadell Markham continued. But it is what it is. I think Kari's done just about everything we can do, really. 
He bared his teeth briefly. And whatever happens in the inner system, things are going to get a bit lively in the outer system in about, he consulted his chrono, another three minutes. SLNS Quebec, Task Force 790, Beowulf System. Liang Tao Rutgers sensed Angelica Helen hovering behind him, but it was only a vague awareness. His attention was centered on the tactical information pouring in from the thick shell of recon platforms he'd deployed. The shells, plural, actually. One hemisphere of drones raced towards Cassandra, sweeping the volume ahead of TF-790, while another sped towards the inner system from TF-90's original N-Space emergence point. Transmission lag had become an issue on the inner system flight, but the truth was that any data from them was only icing on the cake. Their true function had very little to do with the gathering of tactical information and a great deal to do with misdirection. In fact, the entire Fabius operational plan relied on misdirection, and it seemed to be working well. Aside from those mysterious grazers, He'd reworked the numbers a dozen times, and Schlegel was right. Rutgers couldn't prove someone, someone besides the SLN, had been taking out control stations, but the locations were right, and he didn't like the implications of that at all. He checked the time again. TF-790 had been in Beowulf space for almost three quarters of an hour. Under the original ops plan, they'd have altered course in another 19 minutes. Given Admiral Capriotti's revision, they changed course in only 14, and Rutgers was entirely in favor of the revision. In fact, he'd just, status change, one of his tracking ratings announced suddenly. Missile launch, multiple missile launches, range at launch 205.2 million kilometers, acceleration 451.076 KPS squared. Rutgers' eyes darted to the tactical plot, and he swallowed hard as CIC's uncaring computers updated it. Hundreds, thousands of missile icons raced outward from a launch point one light minute outside Beowulf's orbit. Sir, they've just fired approximately 6,000 missiles at us, he heard his own voice reporting. Time of flight? Capriotti asked sharply. Sir, this is the longest range we've ever seen them launch at. We do know now that their birds can incorporate a ballistic phase, just like the cataphract, but that was from what we think are their cruiser range missiles and we still don't know what the maximum endurance on their missile drives is, even for their cruiser missiles. We don't have any idea what it might be for their capital missiles, and if this is a system defense variant we haven't seen before? The ops officer shrugged. Assuming they could make the entire run at their present acceleration, and I don't see how anybody this side of God could pull that off, we'd be looking at 16 minutes from time of launch. As it is, he shrugged again, helplessly, and Capriotti tried not to glare at him. It was scarcely Rutgers' fault, but that did nothing about the icy fist closing around the Admiral's heart. He sat back in his command chair, looking down at the tactical plot deployed from its base, and his mind raced. If he'd been in command on the other side, those missiles would have been targeted solely on his battlecruisers, ignoring everything else on his sensors. But would he have concentrated on only some of those battlecruisers, or spread his fire among them all? Spread evenly, that would work out to right on 15 birds per ship which wouldn't have been enough, for most people's missiles at any rate, to saturate the individual ship's missile defense. On the other hand, the SLN had discovered the hard way that no battlecruiser was likely to be combat capable after more than three or four, at most five hits from Manticoran capital missiles. So they might not feel the need to completely overpower his missile defense. On the other, other hand, 
Even the Mantis had to have some doubts about the accuracy of their fire at this range. So at what point did their faith in their systems and their recognition of Murphy's impartiality intersect? Had they fired this hurricane of missiles at less than all of his battlecruisers in order to get enough concentration for decisive results? Or had they spread their fire evenly? And was this all they had, or had they retained a reserve for follow-up salvos? He certainly wouldn't have used everything he had in the first launch. But there was no sign of a second launch, yet at least. Of course there wasn't, he thought after an instant. Without FTL control platforms closer to him, they couldn't coordinate a second salvo tightly in terms of time. Even with FTL sensor platforms right on top of TF-790, any evaluation of the first strike would take over 10 minutes to get back to the first strike's launch point. And without forward-deployed FTL control platforms, it would take several more minutes for any targeting corrections based on that evaluation to catch up with missiles streaking towards him. Even in a worst-case scenario, which assumed they really could maintain this monster acceleration all the way to TF-790, he had 16 minutes, 14 now, he noted almost absently, before the first salvo could reach him. If they were going to fire a second one, they'd probably want to have at least 10 or 15 minutes after that for the first strike evaluation to get back to them and any adjustments to their follow-on missiles targeting orders to catch up before they entered attack range. So if they did launch a second wave, the timing on it would probably provide a window on when the first one was likely to arrive. Which was all very interesting, but didn't solve his immediate problem. Execute breakaway now, he said. Executing breakaway aye, sir, Rutgers acknowledged, and Capriotti looked up from the tactical plot to find Helen standing beside him. Still 16 minutes to second stage launch, sir, she said quietly. Understood. But as far as we can tell, they're busy shooting at us, not anything closer in. And frankly, by this point, there's not that much they could do to stop the second stages. In which case, I'm a little more concerned about surviving, and those 12 minutes might just help that happen, don't you think? That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a fossilized octopus tentacle relic of St. Octavius, the saint who made his name by sitting at the bottom of a flagpole, submerged off the Barbary Coast for 25 years, and breathing through a straw. Plus thanks and praise and gratitude to DJ Butler, author of Serpent Daughter. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Having taken her father's throne, Sarah Calhoun has fallen out with one of her best allies, and her brother Nathaniel heads into Imperial Philadelphia with a reckless plan. Her uncle Thomas, armed with new powers and new allies, aims to remove Sarah from her throne and from the world of the living. To survive and to gain the strength she needs to fight an impossible war, Sarah must unite the Mound Builder Kings to enact an ancient rite that will propel her beyond mortality. Servant Daughter by T.J. Butler is the newest entry in the Dragon Award-winning Witchy War series from Bane Books at BaneBooks.com. Um...